talking about judgment, talking about transfiguration, and uh, you know, sharing with you. I think the, that that Mount Tr- of Transfiguration always makes me chuckle because he's telling them all of this, and he's got uh, you know, he's got Moses, he's got Elijah, and Peter's like, "Hey, let's make three churches," and Jesus is like, "No, no, no." Stop it. <laughs> well, and here's the point of this is what does he actually, what did Peter actually say and what does he mean? And mm. that's what is a clue for this particular story because what you're seeing there is, I don't want to use the wrong word to give you the wrong impression, but it's it's a vision or because when we say like we're transported to it, it's more of a vision into the future. So mm-hmm. he's not seeing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in that moment. He's seeing him in the millennium. Mm. And so Peter actually gives us the clue with his words, as much as he likes to blurt out the craziest things, <laughs> he actually is the one who actually, you know, says, oh, he actually gets it in that moment. Interesting. So here's what happens. Okay, so where it says it's called a transfigured millennium. So what is he building? Luke 9. Now it came to pass about eight days after these saying, now notice, nothing's coincidental, right? So how many days is it? It's eight days. Mm-hmm. So there's even a little clue there that we're looking at something that has to do with eternity or infinity, right? So it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James, went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. So already, this is not happening on that mountain. Something else, they're having a vision and something very, very big is happening. It's not just some, you know, uh, something in the dust of the mountain. No, something big is happening. Behold, two men talked with them, who are Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So if you go back and read that, what is he actually saying he should build? He said tabernacles. He wants to build them a booth. He realizes it's Feast of Tabernacles. He's Mm. seeing the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium. So, not knowing what he said, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So, you know, later on you see Paul, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, having visions into the third heaven. You see John writing in Revelation. But this is actually the first glimpse, even before his death and resurrection, he's showing you what's to come, which is pretty cool. So Peter, James, and John were transported, so to speak, in a vision into the future to see Christ in his glory, in his kingdom. Now, of course, since there's no time in the future, it really was not into the future. It was just looking for what's coming, but so to speak, on the earth, it would be future. It's interesting to note that Peter associated that time with tents or tabernacles. Hebrews 1, 8 through 9, quotes Psalm 45, 7 to speak of his future time. But to the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus will be enthroned at this Feast of Tabernacles in eternity and anointed with gladness. Gladness, now in the 
New Testament, you have agaliasis, which means exultation, extreme joy, gladness. At feasts, people were anointed with the oil of gladness. Hebrews 1.9 alludes to this inaugural ceremony of anointing and used it as, as kind of an emblem of the divine power and majesty to which the Son of God had been exalted. Then Zadok, the priest, took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. Now that might remind you of the water-drawing ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles on this, the great day. There's a reason for that. The Feast of Tabernacles is also the feast called the Feast of Ingathering in Exodus 23 focusing on its role as a celebration of the large autumn far harvest in the Holy Land that foreshadows a large spiritual harvest. Satan is bound. The saints and martyrs are raised in the resurrection to rule with Jesus. Everyone else waits for the second resurrection. Then it will be that all the nations who have come against Jerusalem and survived will go up each year to worship the King, Jehovah of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. God's word reveals that the nations will one day gather to fight against Jerusalem. It also tells us with a, without a shadow of a doubt who will win the battle, for Jehovah himself will fight for his people. So think about the millennium, all this whole thing. is You, you may notice that whether it's defeating the Pharaoh, the splitting of the Red Sea, all of these things are little glimpses and shadows into this Feast of Tabernacles. Following the battle, the survivors from these attacking nations will once again go up to Jerusalem, not to make war, but to worship Jehovah a host, demonstrating their submission to the King of Kings. As prophesied in Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, in the last days the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Jehovah, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. All the nations will have a new orientation around God's will and his word as they worship him annually in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. Their annual schedule will then be aligned with Jehovah's biblical calendar as his priorities will be seen in their new confession to worship. The scriptures actually speak of the Feast of Tabernacles as being seven days, but also speaks of an eighth day in which a holy convocation is to be held with sacrifices made and no traditional work done. The eighth day is the last great day of the feast. At the end of the seventh day, they leave the booths, they go home, they then come to the temple on the eighth day, like heaven or eternity. The eighth day symbolized the final judgment of the dead into their eternal life or the lake of fire. And it was, oddly enough, the eighth day that they brought the woman caught in adultery. Hmm. Why is that? Well, we're supposed to rule in the millennial kingdom and sit as judges in the great white throne judgment. The Pharisees wanted to judge, but only pretended to be righteous. They walked away when told, you know, whoever is without sin. Jesus didn't mean innocent of all sin, but that specific sin. The law said that they must be innocent of the offense of adultery to throw the first stone. Jewish law said only a witness of a capital offense could throw the first stone. Once they left, there was no one to accuse her, no legal witnesses. We must be careful of bearing secondhand offenses of others. It happens a lot that they're hurt, but we're angry and offended, and we let the stones fall. That's what we have to do. Meanwhile, the guilty lady walked away on the eighth day, told to sin no more. Our actions determine what we do on the eighth day and what we will be on the eighth day. It's kind of a neat story, and uh, it's kind of lost sometimes in the in the midst of uh, 
of what it actually is. And if you look a little closer as you read next time through, you might find yourself in all kinds of situations where you're looking at the millennium, at the Feast of Tabernacles as you're reading through scriptures. Lots mm. of things go on. So one way is to kind of look for that word eight or eighth. Is sometimes that's a hint that they're, they're giving you a glimmer or look into the eternity. The numbers are are definitely powerful to look at as we go through Scripture. As we know, Hebrew, the depth of that language, the the music connotations, the numbers, the letters, the power that is there. Everything. Everything. Now, I've got two more pieces that I want to share before we go um, in this next hour. But And this is because what if the Jews have missed the more significant things of the... Uh, Feast of Tabernacles. What if we were so focused on the actual thing that we, or the shadow, that we missed what it's actually about, what this word sukkah or sukkot is really about? Could that be possible? I think it might be. So uh, I'll share a little bit about that over the next two breaks and then we'll wrap it up.